friends and happy Memorial Day weekend. So good to be with you all. Hey, we're finishing our study on John the Baptist, the the anatomy of greatness. Let me do a little review with you of what we've looked at so far. Uh, Week one, we looked at his lifestyle. His lifestyle is that those weird habits that he had that contributed to his spiritual growth called spiritual disciplines. And then we looked at his message. Man, John was bold, remember? If it needed to be said, he said it. And his humility, Christ may become greater, may I become less. His mom, Elizabeth, boy, was she inspiring. Last week, we looked at John's doubt. Even though he was so great, he was great even with his doubt. That was very encouraging for many of us who struggle with doubt at times. And now, finally, it makes sense that the final week, the final chapter in our study of this great man is his death, the closing chapter. And I'm looking forward to taking a look at a difficult and inspiring passage. By means of transitioning in, I want to tell you of something that happened to me a few years ago. I was in a hot tub. Uh, Of course, right? When I was on Colorado skiing, the best way to end a long day of skiing is to slide into that bubbling hot water. And I did so because the hotel had a hot tub, and there was one other guy in this big hot tub with me. And so I struck up a conversation with him. I found out he lived in Colorado. He found out where I was from. I I asked him what he did for a living, and he said, I'm in pharmaceuticals. And I'm like, oh, my brother-in-law works for J&J. Johnson & Johnson, if you don't know. You know, it's kind of the inner abbreviated lingo there. And he's like, oh, that's nice. I go, who do you work for? He said, well, I own my own pharmaceutical company. I'm like, whoa, whoa. I said, "Uh, what pharmaceuticals do you produce? And he said, well, he said, I own a grow-op, which I had no, you you, who know what that is, shame on you. Uh, I I said, what's a grow-op? And he says, I own a cannabis grow operation. And I must have still looked confused because he clarified, he says, I farm marijuana. And I'm like, oh, oh, wow. And he went on to share how he had this, one of the largest greenhouses in all of Colorado he owned as he grew this huge marijuana crop. Got a little awkward in the hot tub at that time. And I'm like, what do I say? What do I say? I'm like, how's business? You know, and he... He said, thanks for asking. It's booming. (laughs) And I'm like, that's nice, I think. You know, it was just awkward. Uh, Really awkward when he said, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh. 
He said, you probably don't use marijuana. I'm like, no. He said, he goes, that's okay. He goes, I don't go to church. <laughs> and I'm like, hey. At this point, I go, I just dove into it. I, I asked him, I go, what do you tell your kids that you do for a living? He said, just like I told you, uh, pharmaceuticals. And I'm like, but what about like take your kid to work day, you know? And he said, yeah. He goes, my kids have never been to my job. They think I work in some boring office building. And they've never asked. I've never invited. And I'm like, ah. Had you seen the two of us, you know, having a conversation, you may have had this thought, you know, that's an odd couple. You know, a pastor conversing with a drug guy and... You know, it was just kind of unanticipated, and it's similar in so many ways to what we're about to read about. It's about a relationship, an unlikely relationship between a priest, a prophet, and a nasty, nasty guy named Herod. King Herod. Now, I want to clarify, this is not the King Herod that uh, we read about in the days of Jesus' birth. That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great built all this amazing architecture. He was the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. That Herod has died at this point. It's his son, Herod Antipas. I'll put up a little map here. Herod the Great didn't want his kids being as powerful as he was. (laughs) So he divided his land between the yellow and the orange and the pink, purpley one here. And Herod Antipas was given this orange territory to rule. This part of it was called the Galilee. It's up by the Sea of Galilee. And this is the other part that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is where John the Baptist lived and did his ministry. He ministered on the Jordan River baptizing people, but he was on the east side of it. So he was in the territory of Herod Antipas. And it's that Herod that we're about to read about. The passage, if you want to read along, it's on page 1007 in the Bible's in the seat back. It's Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 6. Mark 6, verse 17. Herod himself had given orders to have John, that's John the Baptist, arrested. And he bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. There's a love triangle, folks, that I'm going to have to untangle for you in just a moment. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, Herod is Herod Antipas. He's got a brother, Philip, who lives in Rome. Philip is working with the empire and the capital of the Roman Empire is in Rome. And Herod decides, I'm going to go visit my brother. I'm going to take a vacation, live for a time at his house. And it was on that vacation to Rome that sparks started to fly between Herod and his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. Sparks flew, an affair came about, and the affair led to love. Love led to his decision to steal his brother's wife and make her his own wife. Ugly, ugly stuff. And John confronts him on it. Now I want to take a look here. It says, for John had been saying to Herod, what you've done is awful. 
How did John say something to Herod? The only way you'd get an audience with King Herod is if he invited you. And so we can put speculation together here and say that Herod had heard about this great preacher named John who was in his territory drawing thousands. And Herod had said, I want to meet the guy. Somebody, go fetch John. What did they say? The Baptist. Sure enough, John came. I mean, this is like being invited to the Oval Office. Most of us would have been so nervous and starstruck and only said nice things. (laughs) John the Baptist, after the formalities of meeting him, he says, hey, buddy, can we talk? John says, what you doing stealing your brother's wife? That is against the law of God. Here you're supposed to be a leader of the Israelites, God's people following God's ways, and their king is robbing his own brother of his wife? And he confronted him. We shouldn't be surprised. Remember John in his message that we learned, he's just, repent! You know, that was kind of John's courageous style. But the the verse here says that John had been saying multiple times. This is a repeated thing. So apparently, even after the first visit to King Herod, Herod said, maybe John was just a little grumpy. I'm going to invite him back and see if it goes better. Well, every time he was invited back, John eventually got around to the same thing. Herod, you got a sin problem. Now, this angered Herod. It infuriated his wife. Next verse, verse 19. Herodias, that's his wife, nursed a grudge against John, and she wanted to kill him. Wow. But she was not able. Next verse. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came, and it's opportune for Herodias, this angry wife. It's her opportunity to kill John, is what it is. On his birthday, yeah, to kill John. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet. What well, we would call that a birthday party, right? He invited his high officials, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias, let me clarify, this is not Herod's daughter. This is Philip's daughter with his wife, first marriage. And so a stepdaughter to Herodias. When the daughter of, a stepdaughter to Herod, when the stepdaughter of Herodias came in and danced, She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. His dinner guests are all men, and they're probably drunk by this time. And so when a young girl dances in a way that pleases drunk men, we can imagine what type of a dance that might have been. Probably exotic of some sort. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. Do you see what's going on here? All of his buddies are drunk, and they're cheering the girl. woo 
she's awesome, you know, and he's like, yeah, she's awesome. He gets swept up in the bravado of the moment and proclaims, hey, I'll give you, darling, whatever you want, and he makes an oath that he will soon regret making. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mom, what shall I ask for? He said, I can have whatever I want. The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. I mean, he's in a tight spot here. He doesn't want to kill John, but he's announced to all of his friends, I'll give her whatever she wants, and now she's got a request. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her, and so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Verse 27, the man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mom. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And so ends the life of what Jesus said, the greatest man who had ever lived. Tragic. I mean, he's in his young 30s and some wicked woman and a humiliation of putting his head on a platter. That's how his life ends. One side of us just grieves, and rightly so. It is a tragedy. But the other side of us should recognize that this is a beautiful story of a man who gave it all for his God, a man who was so devoted to the cause, the kingdom of God, that he said, man, I will live and give till the very end, and even then I will give my whole life if called upon. And what an inspiring example for us to do the same, to live for Jesus no matter what and to give everything, our very life, if called upon. Not only is it a beautiful story of how John gave it all, it's also a story of this unique relationship between Herod and John. And it's that unique relationship that I'd like to talk to you about. Can we do that? I, I'll admit, I overlooked this. I've read this story before, and I've you know, been swept up in the drama of it, but I've never noted the curious, I'm going to call it a friendship, that John and Herod had. And to analyze that, I want to go back and look at one verse that we've already read. That's verse 20. And in verse 20, I want to pick out various words because each word contributes to our understanding of their unique odd couple relationship. You ready? The first word I want to highlight is protected. You know, if we're oversimplistic, we would say that Herod and John were enemies. You know, John confronted him. He wanted him dead. But it's not that simple, is it? Herod, yes, was upset at John's confrontation of his sin. But he also was on John's side. He was trying to protect John from his crazy wife who was out to get him. So he he imprisoned him precisely because that was the best way to protect him. And maybe also because Herod wanted John nearby in his own house whenever he wanted him. And so we have to recognize that they were on the same side in some ways. Here's another word, knowing. John, 
or Herod, I should say, knew John. Herod was knowing John to be a man who's righteous and holy. Herod really knew. Righteous and holy are inner attributes. Do you see that? This is the heart of the man. And so it can be said that Herod really knew the heart of John. They had clearly spent enough time together that Herod could say, I know what this guy is like. I know the substance of the man. Isn't that interesting? These guys really knew each other, all right? And what did Herod know about John? He knew him to be righteous. Righteous is a cool word. You know, it has to do with moral excellence. It has to do with inner beauty. Not external beauty, but character beauty. And if you would have asked Herod, hey, tell me about John the Baptist, he'd say, man, the guy is righteous. There is a virtue, there is a character in him that is stunning like a bright, beautiful light in a dark world. It's just it's great. And he was drawn, Herod was drawn to the beauty in John. Now, what about this word, holy? Holy is similar to righteous, only it adds a little. It, holy means set apart. It, it implies contrast. It says there are some things that are secular or uh, profane, but then there's the sacred that's set apart unto God. That's what holy is. It's saying it's different than everything else. And in this case, who is John different than? <laughs> well, Herod knew he was different than me. He probably said, John, unlike me, is holy. He's set apart. He's so beautiful and good. And he said, in, in my own heart, uh, Herod said, I, I see my wickedness. I am nasty. I am nasty compared to uh, this guy. In fact, he would probably say, I see my ugliness, not so much because he confronted my sin, but just because when I put up my life next to him, the beauty in his life just makes me realize how uh, profane I am compared to his holiness. Isn't that interesting? The result of this, what did it result in? Fear. Here, Herod feared John. That's pretty unique, is it not? The, the king is trembling in fear of the poor guy down in the dungeon with chains on. You'd expect it to be the other way around. Listen, Herod is not intimidated by John physically. Herod is intimidated by John spiritually. When Herod is with John, his knees knock a little bit. He has a little tremor, and he's like, I sense power, authority. What he sensed was God in John. Uh, he was really trembling at God, the greatness of the maker who's above the earthly kings. The greatness of the maker was in this man. And when I was with the man, in some ways I was with God. And Herod couldn't explain it probably. All that he knew was that he trembled in awe-filled respect for a weird, otherworldly power in this guy. Next word here, heard. Herod heard John. They talked. I don't know how they talked. Maybe Herod went down into the dungeon and they talked through the bars of the jail. Or maybe Herod called a guard to bring John up to one of his rooms up above. Maybe a little of both. But these guys got together and they talked. And specifically, 
John talked and Herod heard him, and I wonder what John said. Well, think about it. We know one thing already, and that is John said, dude, you sin, right? That was one thing, but it was more than that. When we studied the message of John, we learned that John was a preacher of the gospel, which is the good news, the whole message, which has two parts. You sinned, but there's a forgiveness that's available for your sin. And we can imagine that John would have shared with Herod the wholeness of the gospel message. Herod, what you did by stealing your brother's wife, do you realize how ugly that is? Yet, Herod, you can be forgiven. Herod, the God who made the universe, the true king, well, he is extending to you this opportunity where you repent and find in him a grace that will wash away your sin and give you a newness of life. What do you think? I mean, that's the message that Herod would have heard. And what did he think of it? He liked it. This word here, he liked to listen to John. I did a little research on the word liked, and I found that it's this uh, Greek word that's heideose. Heideose is what we get hedonism from. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. So heideose is pleasure. It's joy. It's enjoyment. It's delight. Herod found joy in listening to John. When John would use words to paint pictures of what God is like, it would just lighten Herod's heavy heart. When when John would paint pictures with words of what God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, his beautiful kingdom was like, uh, I can imagine Herod falling into a trance of sorts where he says, I am seeing things I've never heard of before. And I, I find my heart coming alive, this joy, this delight coming into me at the mere contemplation of what you say. You say, boy, it sounds to me like Herod was being drawn in. I think he was. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it when I see this word, puzzled. At first, I, I misread this word. Maybe you did the same. When I read this, I first thought Herod was just a little clueless, and he's like, what? I don't understand what you're saying. But it's not clueless lack of understanding. He was puzzled at what he should do. Some of the commentators say perplexed that he was in a quandary, that he was conflicted. Do you understand? One side of him was drawn to commit his life to this God that John was describing. Uh, th- it sounded too good to be true, this forgiveness, this love, this adoption into God's family. One side of him wanted to say, I'm in. But the other side of him was like, Herod, do you have any clue what kind of a lifestyle change that would be for you to surrender to the kingship of another king? And so he was, uh, he was a tug of war going on inside of him. Maybe some of you can relate. And it was in that season of tug of war that his birthday came. I, I wonder, had there been more time, maybe Herod would have trusted in God's grace and given his life over. But the birthday came, and Herod decided to throw a party and probably got drunk at the party, and he asked his stepdaughter to dance, and Everybody liked it, and he said something he shouldn't have said. I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And Herod in that moment realized, my time of deliberating is over. I guess I got to make a choice. Uh, 
All the eyes were on him and saying, come on, she said you'd give her. You said you'd give her. So he said, all right, kill him. And it was over. Herod made the wrong choice. And his friendship with John the Baptist came to a very unfortunate end. It's a sad story from Herod's perspective. I mean, we feel the potential of him finding salvation, the point of life, but no, he missed. And it's a reminder to us who befriend those who are far from God that sometimes they're being drawn in and sometimes they're in a quandary. They're puzzled what to do. And sometimes they say no. I mean, they may even turn against us like Herod did to John. But sometimes... It's beautiful in the results because this thing that's going on here with John and Herod is stunning in its brilliant strategy, salvation strategy that God's up to. Let me show you a verse that reminds me so much of this drama. The verse is in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. As I read this, tell me if you don't see John and Herod in this, Okay. Here we go. Paul speaking to us. And he says, may you become blameless and pure. Isn't that John the Baptist? He was called righteous and holy. May you become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. In a warped and crooked generation. John the Baptist was so beautiful, but he was in a world, you know, Herod's world, that was corrupt and perverted and gross. It's beauty, it's light in darkness. In fact, Paul goes on to say, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. When you're really beautiful like John the Baptist, you shine like a star in the sky. The sky, the night sky at least, is dark and that was the world of Herod. And John shone like a star. It says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life. The word of life is the gospel. It's what John gave Herod. It's that invitation. Isn't this exactly what John did? He was beautiful in a dark world. And Herod was drawn to the beauty within John. And as John held out the word of life, Herod was so close and yet so far. Let me show you an example where there's victory. I thought, I, I, we need to have a victory story. And I came across one recently as I've been reading the biography of C.S. Lewis. You know C.S. Lewis? This biography focuses in on his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien. In fact, let's put them up here. Uh, if you don't recognize their names, let me help you. C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. If you're not a book reader, maybe you know three of them. The fourth is underway. They were turned into movies. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. All of them turned into movies. These two guys were best friends. They lived in Oxford. They were professors at Oxford. I mean, they were intellectuals of the highest order. Both literature teachers, English teachers. And you would have thought, yeah, I suppose that makes sense that they would become best of friends. But there was one key difference between them, and that is that C.S. Lewis at the time was an atheist. He hated Christianity. And Tolkien was a passionate lover of Jesus Christ. If you will, 
this friendship was a little bit like Herod and John the Baptist. This guy is John the Baptist, like a bright star shining in a very dark world. And C.S. Lewis was like Herod, a very corrupt man. In fact, C.S. Lewis was mesmerized by the purity and the beauty in this guy's life. They spent a lot of time together at a pub. I have a picture. It's still over in Oxford. It's called the, the Eagle and Child. Uh, they affectionately called it the Bird and Baby. And they would meet there, and the two of them would talk, kind of like John the Baptist talked to Herod. Through the bars of the prison, these two would talk. And it was in that talking over the years that C.S. Lewis saw the beauty in Tolkien's life. He, he saw, first of all, that Tolkien was an honest man. Honest. Uh, and he wasn't honest. Next slide. He, uh, C.S. Lewis had a deception addiction, chronically deceptive. And he saw a beautiful honesty in this guy. Tolkien had a passionate commitment to sexual purity. C.S. Lewis was a sexual deviant. There was a beautiful marriage that Tolkien enjoyed. He adored his wife, Edith. They had a beautiful marriage for 55 years together. Can you believe that? And uh, he wrote poetry. You know, he's a writer, so he, loved, he wrote love poems to his wife for the totality of their 55 years. Guys, are you doing that still, huh? <laughs> C.S. Lewis saw that kind of marital love, and he was living with a woman that was not his wife. He wasn't married. Uh, he, he saw him as a dad, and Tolkien was an incredible dad. Just, he had three boys, and then the youngest was a girl. And he loved his kids. In fact, he wrote children's books for his kids, and they were just for his kids. They were, not, they were published eventually, but it was after he, his death because he said, no, this is not for the populace. These are for my kids. He wrote the books. He illustrated them. He was a fantastic, was a fantastic artist. And he, they were just for his kids. He would pull his kids up in his lap, and he'd say, Dad's written and illustrated another book for you, and now I'd like to read it to you. The love he had for his kids was just beautiful, particularly to a man who felt so neglected by his own dad. C.S. Lewis's dad just abandoned him. And in that pain and ache, to see the beauty that was there, C.S. Lewis was an empty, hurting man. Tolkien was a man filled with joy. And Lewis began to realize this difference is a God thing. God has made this man's life like a bright, beautiful star. Lewis eventually became convinced that God existed. He wasn't a Christian yet, but he had become a theist. And then, one sacred night, it was on this path called the Addison Trail in Oxford. The Addison Trail, look at it. I mean, is that just gorgeous or what? If you're going to accept Christ, that's the spot to do it, you know? <laughs> The two of them were walking down the path. And this is the route that Tolkien took. He, he said, Lewis, you know how you and I love story? You and I love story about as much as anything. He said, that's our, our passion, our calling. He said, you love story because God made you love story. 
In fact, he said, God put in all of us a love for story so that we would resonate with the great story. He said the great story is what he called the Christ story. He said, in fact, every story you've written that's beautiful or read that's beautiful is beautiful in part because in small ways it reflects or it has echoes of the great story, the true story. He said the Christ story, he goes, look at it. It's got all the epic pieces of what make a story great, a clash between good and evil, a noble king who comes to the rescue and gives his own life to save the beloved. He said, this is what you know we were made to resonate with. In fact, all other good stories are only good because in some way they reflect that story. And C.S. Lewis realized that's true. And on this path, with that argument, with Tolkien holding out the word of life, C.S. Lewis became a Christian, committed his life to Christ, found forgiveness and adoption into God's family. Next slide. C.S. Lewis became a Christian, and he uh, started becoming very vocal about his faith. In fact, C.S. Lewis became the number one defender of Christianity in the 20th century. He wrote and sold so many copies of his books, 200 million copies of his books, have gone out. And he has, I would argue, the greatest contribution Tolkien made to the advance of the cause of Christ was leading this guy to Jesus. Him shining like a bright light, like a star in the darkness, holding out the word of life that brought and wooed this guy in. He's just beautiful. It worked. The Philippians 2 thing worked. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this, this happened with those guys, and it can happen with you. This is the beautiful dynamic that happened with Herod and John. It's the beautiful dynamic that happened with Lewis and Tolkien. And I give it to you as an application. In fact, I'll give you three words. Shine among them. Let's just simplify it for us, shall we? Here's the application for you of this study. Shine among them. Shine means you got to be bright. Your life has got to be beautiful. It's got to be righteous, holy, pure, all those words we looked at. And you said, wait a minute, I thought being a Christian we can be a mess. Just come to Jesus with all the sin. You're right, that's where we start. We come to him as we are, and in that moment he forgives us and embraces us and takes us in. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. So the Christian journey is one of beautification. It's one of becoming holy. Sanctification is the theological term for it. And if you're not growing more beautiful, you're not embracing the Christian life as it was meant to be. And it's not beauty on your own strength. It's beauty through working with him, his power, by his Holy Spirit, helping us shine more like Jesus. So I would ask, are you beautiful enough? I'm not. I'm not condemning you. I mean, I'm not. As brought to my attention this week, or last week, as I had lunch with a guy in our church, it was a great lunch until he ruined it by turning the conversation at the end. He said, he said Jeff, can I bring up an awkward matter? And I wanted to say, no, don't do that, actually. I said, sure. 
He said, I want to talk about this weakness in your life that I observe. The, the weakness is sin. I, he didn't say that, but I'll tell you, it's sin, all right? And he said, Jeff, I just know that God can give you victory in this area, and I want you to grow. And then he gave me his reason, which I just did not anticipate. He said, the reason I want you to gain victory in this area is to prove the gospel works. I expected him to say, I want you to grow in this area for God's sake. But that wasn't what he said. I thought he was going to say, maybe for your sake. That's true too, but it's not what he said. He said, I want you to grow for their sake. Because if you shine brighter and show that with the Lord, victory is possible. You know, the gospel is not just how you get saved or reconciled with God. The fullness of the gospel is also how you get purified and become a Christ-like person. And he's saying, they got to know. And Jeff, if you grow, you will shine brighter. And so, I've been really convicted these days. I got I to gotta attack this stuff in God's power. Maybe, uh, maybe you look at some ugliness in your life and you just say, that's just who I am. I'll always be this way. No! It's just who you were. With Christ, a power to grow, and little by little, and not perfect, but definitely growing, is available to you. It is your calling. So shine. Shine brighter. And the second thing is among them. One of the problems is that some of us are shining brightly, but we're just not among them. We're hiding in a Christian bubble, like under a basket, Jesus said. What good is a light if it's not out in the sky? What good is a star if it's not lighting up the darkness? And so one of the goals that we see in this example of John the Baptist and Herod is that you got to get with them. You got to befriend them. You, you, you need, you know, a pot pal like my guy in the hot tub, you know? <laughs> Folks, it is God's plan that his people would be his ambassadors in a dark world. Not of the world, but in the world. And I would ask you, are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing building friendships with non-believers? Or are you insulating yourself in a subculture that's all Christian? We must get in the world so that others can see. Not perfection in us, because none of us are perfect, but change in us that is only explained by the grace of God bringing about that change. It's the plan of God, and it works. And I pray that increasingly we will shine among them, just as John the Baptist did in Herod's world. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. And then after I close in prayer, we're going to sing a song that I just, I, I, I had a hand in picking this song because I think it expresses John the Baptist in such a great way. It's a song that conveys, I am going to follow you, Lord, my whole life. And the second verse goes, even if it costs me my whole life, I'm all in. I want to follow you. And my prayer is that you can sing it from the heart, meaning it as John meant it. Shall we pray? God, we want to shine among them.
We don't want to tolerate the brokenness that's still in us, but we want to grow. And so, Lord, help us be serious about spiritual growth, addressing those areas of sin that remain. And Lord, make us beautiful, not for our sake, but for your kingdom's sake. Help us shine among them. Lord, some of us are scared of folks who are far from Christ, and we need the courage to reach out and enter their world and befriend and prioritize those friendships. God, we pray that all over our church, we would be like bright stars shining in a dark sky, holding out the word of life. And that like C.S. Lewis coming to Christ through his friend Tolkien, there would be tons of people finding Jesus through the shining stars in this room. We pray this in his name. Amen.